Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, I've got Celeste Warren, the Vice President of the Global Diversity and Inclusion Center of Excellence at Merck. She's also a recent author of How to Be a Diversity and Inclusion Ambassador, Everyone's Role in Helping All Feel Accepted, Engaged, and Valued. And on the show today, we talk about quite a bit around diversity and inclusion. What's the current state in corporate America today? What should executive leaders be focused on? How can managers and frontline team leaders approach this? And what's the individual's role, as well as how to become an ambassador yourself? So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Celeste Warren. Celeste, welcome to the show. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to talking about diversity, inclusion, and and how to be a better ambassador. But before we do that, I hear that you started out as a starving sports reporter. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about that. Yeah. When I was in high school, I played sports. I played basketball. I played volleyball. I played softball. And I ended up, everything that I wanted to do was based around sports. I just loved sports. And uh, so when the guidance counselor was talking about careers one day. I thought, you know what? I want to be 
one of those reporters on TV, but talking about sports. And so I joined the school newspaper, the the school yearbook staff. And then when I got into college, same thing. I, I um, went to college at the university, undergraduate at the University of Kentucky on a volleyball scholarship. And so also while I was at the University of Kentucky, I had my own radio show I had um, I was on the school newspaper. I was a sports reporter and had just a lot of fun doing it, really enjoyed doing it. And so I got an internship with the uh, largest radio station in the state. The, it was the voice of the Kentucky Wildcats. And so um, I started interning there and then eventually started working there. And when I started working there full time, I realized that 90% of the people in the industry are making only 10% of the income and the other 10% are making 90% of the income. So um, I just got tired of writing home to mom and dad, calling home and, and asking for money for my rent for my apartment or other things because it was embarrassing. You know, I had graduated from college. I was supposed to be adulting. And I didn't feel like I was. And I got tired of eating ramen noodles and macaroni and cheese. And so I decided to go back to grad school. And my mother talked me into coming closer to home. I'm from uh, Western Pennsylvania. So I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So that's basically kind of it. I love doing it, but it was just, it was hard to live off of the income that I was getting. No, I 100% understand my uh, I have a sweet spot in my heart for writers and journalists because my my wife was also a starving journalist <laughs> so you understand <laughs> yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent I remember you know asking to go out to dinner before as we were dating and she was like I can't afford dinner and I was like I, I got you I got you don't worry. <laughs> I know you're strong you want to go Dutch but uh, I, don't worry I can I can pick up the bill on this one but yeah it was too she enjoyed it as well but it, it you know it's just hard to hard to survive if you can't make enough money. So from a starving sports reporter to vice president of Global Diversity Inclusion Center of Excellence at Merck, what was the path like? Oh, it was it was a little bit of a winding one. I um, when I was in graduate school, I thought that I would go use my telecommunications and television journalism degree. And I had a a minor in political science. I thought I'd use those two degrees to go into, you know, go into Washington, D.C. and be sort of like a, a campaign manager or a press secretary or something like that and kind of mix the two together. And the one of the counselors at Carnegie Mellon University said, oh, no, no, you don't want to do that. <laughs> um, have you thought about human resources? And at the time I was thinking, oh, I don't want to do that because my sort of visual image of human resources was old lady passing out applications. <laughs> and and I I just was kind of, no, I don't want to do that. And she she said, no, no, no. She said human resources is, is a lot more than that. And she talked to me about all of the different disciplines within human resources, organizational design and and development, compensation and benefits, talent management, learning and development, and others. And so I thought, okay, it might, might be interesting. And so I did my internship in the summer between my first and second year of grad school at General Foods in White Plains, New York. And it was hand to glove. It was just something that I just took to like a fish to water and, and really had a good time and also learned a lot. 
And so um, came back and, and uh, went back to Carnegie Mellon, finished my, my last year of graduate school. And before I graduated, I uh, received an offer from General Foods to come there and work. And so I worked nine years for General Foods, Kraft Foods, Maxwell's Coffee was all under the Philip Morris umbrella at the time and different areas under that umbrella for nine years. And then Merck came calling, a headhunter who was working for Merck. They were expanding their HR organization in the U.S. market. And so I called um, a couple of people who I knew were working in the pharmaceutical industry, one of which was my sister. And she was working at Pfizer, a competitor to Merck. And so I asked her about it and I said, what do you think about this company Merck? And she said, you got to go, you got to go on the interview. It's a great company. And I was, I said, wow, I must, I must have to go because here's someone who's, who's at a competing company, a competitor of Merck's and she is advising me to go. So I went in for the interview and um, have been at Merck. I thought to myself at the time, well, you know, I've been in the food consumer industry. I'll try this pharmaceutical thing for a little bit, maybe five years or so, and then go into another industry. And lo and behold, 25 years later, here I am still at Merck. (laughs) (laughs) Must have been a good company. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A great, great journey. And, And when I... When I, eight years ago, my boss at the time, I was the head of HR for our manufacturing division. And my boss, the chief HR officer at the time, she called me into her office for a regular one-on-one. And she said, you know, Celeste, I know how you feel about taking over as, uh, you know, in the diversity and inclusion space. And how I felt was, it was something that I was very, very passionate about. It, It was part of who I was. And if I was going to take on a role like that, I had to make sure that people around me were just as passionate so we could really impact a change and make a change in the organization. And I was in the jobs that I had, I was working diligently in, in integrating DE&I in the groups that I was working uh, for and um, and was you know happy and had been asked several times to be included in the succession for the chief diversity officer. And I always said, no, 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 you know, I don't want to do it. And there's a saying that when when man plans, God laughs. <laughs> and so that's exactly what happened. She talked to me about it and said, you know, Celeste, I really think we need your help. We need to see some results in the area of diversity and inclusion. And we know that you're the person that can really uh, take us to the next level. And she said, you know, I really think you can do it and do it well. Ken Frazier, who was the CEO at the time, he thinks you can do well. In fact, he wants to talk to you about it. And I thought, oh, here's my out because he's the CEO. He's busy. He's probably not going to be able to talk to me for a couple months. (laughs) So I, you know, I have time to sort of walk this back. And I said, sure, you know, I'll talk to Ken. Well, she grabs my hand, walks me over to Ken's office and there he was waiting for me (laughs) to talk to me about it. And we had a great conversation. And by the end of that conversation, he had convinced me that this was the role that I needed to take and he would provide me with the support and and anything else that I needed to be successful because it was just as passionate as I was about diversity inclusion. He was also just as passionate. So it was quite an interesting morning that day, eight years ago. So here I am eight years later, it's been a a huge, huge learning journey for me, building my own DEI capabilities, 
mobilizing the organization and also working externally with peers to really make a change across the business landscape in the United States and globally. No, it's I mean, it's a it's notable work. And I guess we should also we're going to spend a good bit of time kind of talking through a number of areas. But I have to say first, congrats on the new book. Oh, thank you. Yes. And the title is How to Be a Diversity and Inclusion Ambassador. Everyone's role in helping all feel accepted, engaged and valued. I guess you never shook those writer roots, did you? (laughs) I sure didn't. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. When I was laughing with someone, when my mother and I, when I was little, my mother and I, every Sunday night, nobody else in the household. In fact, my dad hated the show, but we used to watch Murder, She Wrote. And I remember right watching that. I like I like murder mysteries. And I remember watching that and thinking, wow, she has a neat job. She just goes around and she travels and she writes books and, and she goes and, and, and just travels around the world. And I thought that would be so neat. And then um, as I got older, life carries you in various different directions. And I can remember thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, talking with other folks who were authors earlier in my career and really saying, oh, there's no way I could do that. Who'd want to hear what I have to say anyway? Who'd want to read what I have to say? And um, Barry Kohler, the publishers, they contacted me. Oh, gosh, it was probably late 2018, early 2019, and said, you know, Celeste, we think you would be someone that would be someone that we would consider to write a book. Have you ever thought about that? And I said to myself, oh my gosh, no, nobody would be interested in what I have to say. And um, and they said, oh, you know, well, just just think about it. And every six or nine months or so, they would send me another email, reach out and and ask me if I thought about it. And so March 2020 happened, pandemic happened and we were shuttered at home and and still working, but all virtually. And they reached out again and I thought, you know, why not? What else have I got to do in my spare time? (laughs) And so um Uh, They sort of shepherded me through the whole process because it wasn't like, oh, we're going to automatically publish you because we ask you. I had to go through the process and had to be put a proposal together. And they walked me through that, helped me, guided me along the way. I finally, the proposal was finished and had to do a presentation in front of their board and they accepted the proposal. And and, uh, I was really, really shocked and surprised still through the whole process. Just I kept thinking why would anybody care about anything that I have to say? You know, I, I'm just I'm just this kid from a small steel mill town in Western PA. So they told me after the process, though, which was kind of funny. They didn't tell me before because they probably felt that I would say, well, you know, forget about it. But they told me afterwards that they get thousands of proposals and requests to publish from different authors a year, but they only publish 50 books a year. And um, and he said, you know, you should be so uh, proud of yourself. And 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 I thought, wow, that's great. And and I, you know, it was funny because if he had told me before uh, all of this, all of the going through the process, I probably would have said, oh, forget it. I'll never, <laughs> they'll never publish anything, you know, with those odds. But um, I'm just very grateful to to them for you know shepherding me through the process, helping me to understand what the process is like, and. Um, and just guiding me through it to to getting published. Yeah. Well, congrats again. It's no small feat. I mean, it, uh, writing a book is it's hard. It's hard yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So let's get into it. Let's talk about diversity and inclusion. And what do you feel like is the current state of diversity and inclusion in corporate America today? I think we have come a long way, especially after the the moment that was a precipice, I think, for many companies uh, in May of 2020 when George Floyd was murdered. Many companies, they were not even even thinking about diversity and inclusion. They didn't have a department or a chief diversity officer within their organization. And they were sort of just limping, limping around, limping along, if you will. And other organizations, they had the role, they had a department, but maybe not as far along as they would like to be in the evolution of their uh, efforts. And, you know, it, it was a time where Many folks in my role, chief diversity officers, were not feeling as if they were valued within their organizations. And it was hard to really get the attention of many senior leaders within the organization. I was lucky. I had a CEO who um, not only talked me into taking the role, but was very supportive and um, just a strong mentor and helped me to think about how we drive DEI through the organization. And he was just very, very supportive and, and just an advocate for me because it's not easy work. But I think where we are across the across the world is everyone sort of woke up and realized that DEI was was something that we had to pay attention to because during the pandemic, if you remember, we're shuttered in place. Most of us, the only connection to our outside to the outside world was through some type of medium, whether that be television, iPads, iPhones. But we were, you know, social media was and the news was how we stayed connected to what was going on outside of our homes, and everything was about the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey. And so it was right there in the face of, of everyone, especially the United States. And we had to pay attention to it. So it was kind of like this quiet storm, this it, perfect storm of this happening and this tragedy and, and everyone sort of silenced. They're not traveling. They're not getting on a plane or train or in an automobile commuting. Everyone is sort of forced to look at it. And as a result of that, 
many corporations, they sent out, you know, statements of solidarity and put things in place. Many of them hired for the first time a chief diversity officer, and many gave their chief diversity officer more resources, both financial and human. And so there were things that were happening, but we kept saying that this can't be just a moment in time. It has to be just an ongoing movement of really amplifying diversity and inclusion. And what we found is that's what has happened. DE&I is just all over the issues that you see from a political, social, economic standpoint. And we see every day the evidence of inequities that exist. And so it's just being amplified. And, And corporations now are moving past the statements of solidarity and really saying, okay, all right, and how do I, how do I take that statement and make it into actions? And I think that's kind of where we are. And it's good to see that. And we're going to have missteps along the way. There are some corporations that, that, you know, it's sort of, they're looking at it as a check the box type, type of exercise, but we have to help each other. We have to learn from each other. We have to lift each other up and really uh, across the landscape, start really moving this world forward so no one is left behind. And I think corporations, companies, they're starting to realize that globally, that they have an obligation not just to increase their revenue and their bottom line, but also they have an obligation to social and corporate responsibility. And I think that's where we are right now. Some are struggling with it because it used to be, you know, you you just, let me just do focus on my business. That's what I need to do. That's what the shareholders are asking me to do. And I don't need to sort of look outside in that type of an environment and and do that. But in today's world, they have to. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And what I'd love to do is kind of go like layer by layer within an organization and and hit on like, let's start at the top. You know, what should executive leaders at companies be focused on to drive more diversity and inclusion? Well, it's so important for executives, those in the C-suite, to understand the role that they play. It's sort of like um, anything that they do as they lead their respective organizations and different divisions of a company, they have to make sure that they are, they understand and they are helping to write and author the strategy for diversity, equity, and inclusion in their respective organization. They have to make sure that they are taking accountability for the outcomes of that strategy. They have to make sure that they are driving accountability through their leadership teams and their management. And that's so very, very critical because you have to make sure that everyone understands your expectations as a leader when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's that phrase, the shadow of the leader. And it is so important when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion within an organization. The leader has to role model the behaviors, inclusive behaviors, and other skills and capabilities when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, because others need to see through that leader the change that's exemplified through them. They need to make sure that in discussions with their employees and their leadership teams, that diversity and inclusion is in the forefront, that they're thinking about their business through a lens of diversity and inclusion and making an impact to their to customers, regardless of what their dimensions of diversity are. And so they need to make sure that they are role modeling, that they're driving accountability, and they're being intentional about the diversity and inclusion efforts within the organization and very clear about their expectations when it comes to diversity, equity, 
and inclusion. So if we go from executives to kind of like middle managers, team leaders, if you will, like the front line of management, what should they be doing differently or better um, today to try to foster the same diversity and inclusion? Well, middle managers, first line managers, they are so, so very crucial. And the reason why I say that is it's sort of like an hourglass. The senior executives, they're, they're creating the strategies, working together to create the strategy, making sure that everyone understands the outcomes. The employees, they are very much wanting a, an inclusive culture so they can feel valued within the organization. And it's in the hourglass, it, in the middle, is that first and second line manager, those middle managers. And they have so many things coming at them from departmental priorities, organizational priorities, divisional, you know, wherever they they happen to be priorities. And then they have to take the vision of the senior leaders and sort of operationalize them and say, what does that mean for the 10, 15, 20 people that I supervise? And then also they have to take the feedback and from the employees and the the aspirations that all of the things and desires of the employees and sort of take and, and compile that and feed it back up to the senior management as well. So there's a lot on those first and second line managers. And so when we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, we have to make sure that they understand the role that they play, first of all, and um, educating them, helping them to build their skills and capabilities so they can take the strategy, the diversity inclusion strategy, the company strategy, and then operationalize it and say, okay, now if this is where we're going as a company around diversity, equity, inclusion, and this is what I hear, you know, the leader of the organization saying around it at town halls and, and all of those, then how do I make it real for those people that I supervise and I manage? What, what does that mean for me? We have to help them to understand that and they have to take that and they have to make it real for the people who are in their department. They also, and one of the things that they can do is basically when it comes to hiring of talent, you know, looking at their department and saying, do we have a diverse department? Does it reflect the diversity in the, in the company? Does it reflect the diversity in our patient base? If your your a team is large enough, really making sure that you are creating a diverse employee base on your respective team, and you know that means making sure that it's diverse from all dimensions of diversity, those you can see and those you can't see. And then also, how are you creating an inclusive environment? And managers can do that by asking their employees on their team, you know, what is it that I am doing? to create and enable an inclusive environment, the culture that you all wanna see on this team? And what is it that I'm not doing? And really having those discussions with, with your team to be able to make it a better environment for the team. Because if you're sincere, they will tell you. And then enlisting and working with them to create that culture on the team that you'd like to see. And it just doesn't just end with your team, you should also look across at your peers and say, hey, how can we all lock arms and work together to create that environment that our teams want to have and learn from each other, you know, steal shamelessly from each other ideas that, that different managers are doing and, and, and see if that'll work for your team as well. And then also making sure that you understand what, what your leader's expectations are when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if you're in a staff meeting with your 
peers and your boss and you don't hear diversity, equity, inclusion enough, then volunteer to be that person who at each staff meeting, for example, that you are bringing up the topic and talking about it in in a strategic way and and really um, sharing ideas about what you've done with your team and others have done, other managers have done with teams and having a discussion about it. So those are just some things that managers play and they just play a very, very critical role in advancing the culture. Well, I love the visual that you used of the hourglass as a manager of people. It does feel like that, like you're the the, the nexus point of where the sand gets to go through. <laughs> and only through your collective efforts do you actually make a difference, right? And so I really love that visual because uh, I think it's I think it's poignant. And it, it does feel like it's at that point, which is both the manager and the person, you know, that they're they're coaching, managing, et cetera, where this happens, you know, where you said where it becomes real or you make it real um, at that point in time. I really like that. So if you think about individuals, not managers, just individuals within the company who aren't necessarily managing other people, may not be even a team leader, how can they be a diversity and inclusion ambassador? Yeah, you know, one of the reasons that I landed on this topic for this book was as a result of conversations with individual contributors, people who are not leaders or managing people. And every time that I would speak externally or within the organization, inevitably someone would come up to me and say, you know, Celeste, I hear what you're saying. I'm inspired by what you're saying, but what can I do? I don't manage people I don't have a team of people who I supervise. It's just me. And and how can I make any type of change? So I just wanted to help people to understand that wherever you sit in the organization, you are empowered to make a change. And so there, there are lots of different ways that you can do that. One is you can join an employee resource group. And if your company doesn't have employee resource groups or affinity groups, then start one and really, you know, look to be active in that resource group, not just attending different events and things like that, but try to take a leadership role, start a chapter at your site or at your location and really become active and make a difference that way. You can also, you know, at your boss's staff meeting, your supervisor, your manager staff meeting, ask your manager if you can be their point person for diversity and inclusion and at each staff meeting be responsible for a topic, just 30 minute topic around diversity and inclusion. And you could, um, there are lots of e-learning or training in a box, if you will, that you can facilitate at staff meetings, or you can do something just as simple as sending out an article on diversity and inclusion, inclusion, asking everyone to read it before the next staff meeting, and then lead a discussion around the article. You can start a book club and get colleagues to read a book. And as you're going through the book, each chapter, you can have a lunch and learn and bring folks together. Or if they're not in your company, you can have dinner and bring folks together and and talk about the book and and do book clubs and, and really focusing on diversity and inclusion. My book has a discussion guide in the last chapter, which is a really easy format to really lead a discussion. So there are lots of things that you can do 
and that you have to do, frankly, in order to create the culture that you want to see within your organization. And the reason why I say that they have to do it is because in all organizations, if you segment the employee population, you have your C-suite, which is probably about probably five to 10 percent of less than that of your organization. You have managers, people managers, and that's usually about maybe 10 to 20 percent of your organization, any organization. And the bulk of the organization, 70 to 80 percent of the organization are individual contributors, people who do not manage people. And by far, individual contributors are the largest percentage of the employee population within any organization. And so they have to play an active role in creating the change that we want to see across the organization. Yeah. I've never thought about it in terms of the stats before, but you're totally right. Everyone, most of the people are not you know, our individual contributors and uh, and citizens within the company, so to speak. Well, you gave us some great examples. Are there, is there kind of a, a steps or pathway to being a true ambassador in your mind? Yes, the, Alan, there is. And it's an easy three-step process, pretty pragmatic. I'll say pragmatic and easy depending on the road that you travel. But the first thing is you have to assess yourself. You have to do an inventory of yourself. You have to understand what your strengths are when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. You have to understand what your areas of development are. You also have to understand what your blind spots are and those spots where, you know, you think it's a strength, but it's not really your strength. And then also, very importantly, you have to understand what your biases are. Everyone has biases, whether conscious or unconscious, and you have to understand those. And so you sort of do an assessment of yourself so you understand all of those things, your strengths, your weaknesses, your blind spots, your biases. And once you do that, you put together a development plan for yourself to help you develop in those areas. The second thing you need to do is look around you, look at your environment, look at your your department, look at your company and do an an assessment of the environment that you're in. Is Is it an environment that cultivates and nurtures inclusion, belonging, psychological safety? And one of the ways that you can do that is go on your company's website and see if they talk about diversity and inclusion. You can also um, look at the imaging the photographs that they have of people on the website. Are they diverse? Do they represent the diversity of the world and the environment in which your company uh, operates? Does it mirror the patients and the, the customer base? And another thing that you can do is to look at the environment is look at some of the policies, uh, the people policies, the HR policies that exist within your organization. And usually the employee handbook and all of those policies are online and available to all employees. Do they have a flexible working policy, working arrangement where where people can can work flexibly if they need to, depending on what's happening in their life. That's just an example. And then lots of times, many companies take employee opinion surveys, either once a year or once every other year. Pay attention to those surveys when they release the results, but also and, and to understand what the employees are saying about the culture that exists within the organization. So take an inventory of the environment around you. 
And then the third thing, very importantly, is to take action. It's not enough that you assess yourself and you know what your strengths are, your your areas for development, your blind spots, your your biases. It's not enough that you understand and have done an assessment of the environment around you, but you have to put plans in place to impact change. And so if that's you create the strategy and you're implementing the strategy, if that's, as I talked earlier about having a conversation with your employees, if you're a manager and putting plans in place and actions in place to change the culture, making sure that you're hiring diverse candidates if, if that's what your team needs in its as part of its makeup, encouraging others to elevate their voice and talk about diversity and inclusion and, and those other examples that I talked about, lunch and learns and, and spearheading conversations around diversity and inclusion with your team members and colleagues. So you have to take action in order to mobilize the organization because what we're talking about here is organizational change. And we're just doing it through a lens of diversity and inclusion, going from one state to another. And in order to do that, you have to take action. So those are the three steps that I introduce in the book. Take an assessment of yourself, taking an inventory and assessment of the environment around you, and then third, taking action. Love it. We are a marketing show, marketing today, and you're talking to a bunch of marketers today on the show. How do you think about the marketing function and, and what should marketing be doing to play a larger role in diversity and inclusion? Well, I think that the marketers are very, very important in helping to drive diversity and inclusion in a, in a, lo- a lot of different ways. Number one is within their organization, building their DNI skills and capabilities, making sure that that they understand the importance of being able to integrate de- diversity and inclusion and cultural experiences into their marketing strategies. So helping to understand that and building the skills and capabilities around that with the employees in the marketing organization within your company. Because when they build their diversity and inclusion capabilities, then they'll be integrating it into how they think about the marketing strategies and reaching customers because they, your customers are all diverse. They're from many different spectrums of the you know primary, secondary, cultural dimensions of diversity. And so you have to be in tune to that. If you aren't, then you can't really be an effective marketer. You can't really have an effective marketing strategy. And I'll give you an example in in the pharmaceutical space. Our patients are very, very diverse. And we have to make sure that we understand the barriers and the obstacles that are getting in the way of them being able to experience the optimal health outcomes that we need them to experience. So what are those social determinants of health? What are those things that are getting in the way beyond the medicine or that we want them to take? There are different barriers that are getting in the way from them being able to take the medicine, to get the medicine. So there are inequities that our commercialization organization, our marketing organization have to study and understand. And the way that they do that is by having employees sitting around the table that are representative of those different communities of patients, of diverse patients, because they understand the culture that and the experiences that 
people of various different dimensions of adversity are experiencing. And so it becomes really, really important that they understand that because you will not be successful from that perspective. I, As I said earlier, I, I was in the consumer products industry before coming to pharmaceutical. And that was just even 25 years ago, 30 years ago, diversity, equity, inclusion, understanding the customer, understanding the different environments where they live understanding the different communities that we served as far as, you know, the grocery stores and what they were like in some, you know, urban, rural, different communities across the globe and what was getting in the way of people being able to get food and put food on their table and feed their families, what was getting in the way. And so having that understanding, it was automatically built into the marketing strategies. And, and, um, and that was, you know, decades ago. So fast forward to today in the world that we live in, that is so complex when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion and being able to to understand how people identify and being able to reach that. And there are lots of organizations that have that do a really, really good job in that. You know, I mentioned Procter and Gamble and some of the, you know, the commercials that they have out in advertisement that really are just advertising their products, but they're sending a message and helping to educate people from a societal standpoint. And, you know, there are a couple other examples too that I could talk about, but that one comes to mind that they just have, I think they have an obligation to do that, to really be able to not just advertise the products, but also send a message that helps to educate uh, their customers as well. I agree. I agree. And I think marketing, and many times it is how the company shows up in driving how the company shows up in market, whether that's the plans and strategies on the inside that the organization is rallying around or whether that makes itself surfaces as the advertising and the communications that's happening. They're the megaphone in many ways for what's going on inside the company. So I 100% agree. I think we've got time for one more question and it's a big one because there seems to be a rise in social activism in corporations. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on like, is that a good thing? And if you go down that path, what should we be thinking about or or aware of as we venture into that space? Well, that's a great question, Alan. There used to be, when I came into corporate America, there was that unwritten rule where you didn't talk about politics. You didn't talk about religion in the workplace, remember? (laughs) And, um, you know, fast forward to 2022, you tell uh, someone from Generation Y or Z that you don't talk about those things in the workplace, they'll look at you like you have three heads. And so it's an expectation. And companies, they have been slow to understanding that, many companies, and still struggle with it today because, you know, it's just, I just need to focus on my business. I don't want to upset my shareholders. I don't want to upset investors. I don't want to upset my customers. And so they're sort of walking this, this tightrope. And, and also, you know, now throw in the mix uh, politicians, congressmen, senators as well. So depending on, you know, the line of business that they're in. So they've been kind of slow and very conservative in using the company's voice in different social issues. And I think where we are right now, especially over the last two or three years, there is just an employee awakening. And I was saying this five, six years ago, an employee awakening where employees do not feel that they have to 
shred their identities when they come in through the walls and the doors of their organization where they work. They, you know, things are happening in their communities. Things are happening to people in their families, their friends, and they can't treat the walls of the organization, the doors of the organization, like a car wash where, you know, all of this stress, all of these things are happening in their communities. And then they just come through the car wash and it's sort of shaken off and they just lose their identity and, you know, and they come into work. That's not how it works these days. So we have to, as an organization's, we have to be able to understand that and be able to meet the needs of employees when it comes to what's going on inside their community. What are some of those social issues? And so from an internal standpoint, the old open door policy is even more profound now where it, leaders have to lead in a very different way with a workforce that is much more dynamic than in the past. And so being able to engage in the conversation and the dialogue with their employees and not saying that they have to understand everything there is to know about every individual culture around the globe. That is impossible. That's impossible for DE&I practitioners. But just being able to listen with empathy and be able to hear and help them to, to just be more productive and, and help them from that standpoint and listening with empathy is just really, really critical. And then the corporation, when it comes to certain social issues, there are lots of things that come into play as to whether they elevate their voice or not. And they have to have make those decisions because if they don't, silence in this day and age across many issues is just not accepted. From the standpoint of the labor market, those in generation Y and Z, which are the largest growing generation in the labor market, they want to go to organizations that have the same values and standards that they have as individuals. And they're looking for that. So that's really important when we think about the war for talent and creating an environment that candidates would want to come into and be a part of. And so it also, from a customer base and shareholder base and investor base, they're asking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, the culture of an organization. ESG is on the rise and many questions that investors have around environment, social, and governance, you know, questions around ESG. So all of these things are issues that companies just can't ignore anymore. They just can't think about their top line and their bottom line and revenues. They have to think about these because they are very quickly becoming a part of how successful your organization is going to be and a part of that calculation. No, 100% agree. And more to come on that topic. Celeste, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise with my audience. It's quite enlightening to think about all the ways that we can be all better ambassadors and just better humans at the end of the day. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation, Alan. I just enjoyed talking with you. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. 
There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.